Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello everyone and welcome to The History of England, episode 312, My Heart is My Own. Have I told you about our music teacher at school? I'm getting a feeling of deja vu, so maybe I have. But look, since my family have heard all my anecdotes a couple of hundred times, I see no reason why you lot shouldn't suffer as well. Anyway, our music teacher at school was a very proud Scot of the English will all burn in hell persuasion and in fact of the actually they are already living in hell anyway because they're English level. Honestly, we didn't really care because Mr Smith, his real name, not a pseudonym which was disappointing to us, had one great characteristics. Indeed, the best characteristic any teacher can have as far as a school child is concerned, such as me. He was easily distracted. Tell us about Mary Queen of Scots, sir, one of us would pipe up, and then we'd have nothing to do for the rest of the lesson except get some kip in or do that homework we'd failed to do because it had been porridge on the telly last night. Anyway, this frankly feeble anecdote of my lost years is by way of reintroducing you to a topic that we really need to talk about, which I've been avoiding quite a bit, Mary Queen of Scots. In fact, I think it was August of last year, 2020, when we last really talked about Mary. So how's about a quick refresher so that we're all on the same page? You will recall that Mary had been forced to abdicate by some of her Scottish lords in favour of her two-year-old son, James. Mary was never someone to take the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune with a whimper, so she escaped. She got an army together but she lost the resulting battle. So, she'd fled across the border to Workington in England. Mary had been forced 
to face the indignity of an inquiry in England as to whether or not she was responsible for the crimes of which she'd been accused in Scotland, including the famous casket letters, to which process she furiously objected. And although Burley pursued her at the inquiry, and indeed pursue her all his life, Elizabeth closed the inquiry down without conclusion because Elizabeth was not keen to be forced into a specific course of action where other royals were concerned. And so Mary started her long incarceration in the care of the Earl of Shrewsbury, otherwise known as Limboland. By fleeing to England, Mary had lobbed a tonne of dynamite into English politics, a permanent source of pain, panic, paranoia, plotting and planks. We had already heard of the Rising of the North in 1569, where Mary had been a key plank in their planning. Mary restored as rightful Catholic Queen. And we'd heard about the Ridolfi plot too, the plotting of international enemies again to raise the rebellion amongst English Catholics and bring Mary to the throne of England as a key plank in the plot. It was quite clear to many on Elizabeth's Privy Council that Mary needed to be cancelled, and cancelled as quickly as possible. But Elizabeth's attitude was much more complicated and gives the lie to the idea that Mary was mad to leg it to the Workington Men's Club. Because Elizabeth did not take to the idea of anointed monarchs being cancelled, not one little bit. Nonetheless, she recognised the dangers that Mary represented. So she did, multiple times, try to persuade the Scots to take a queen back, please, but without success. Mary's party in Scotland did not last long before coming to terms with those who had used her son James to get rid of her, though English support for the regents was important too. Murray was assassinated in 1569 and after him until Morton became regent, the Scots moved through the regents like a packet of Tunnock's caramel wafers, but the last of Mary's party surrendered in 1573 and in May of that year Edinburgh Castle finally fell to English artillery and the regency. From the moment she arrived in England, Mary was a prisoner. It was a gilded prison, it has to be said, but prison it most certainly was. Mary's movements were watched, her letters intercepted, her person guarded, though with a varying range of rigour according to her jailer. However, she was also treated as a queen. Elizabeth could not have it any other way, since if he could just lob one anointed monarch into the chokey and forget about them, no monarch was safe, not even those with names beginning with E. So, Mary maintained a substantial household of up to 100 staff, though at times of rigorous cutdown it could be as little as 16. At Tutbury, she had two main rooms which she organised as a presence chamber and a privy chamber, and would sit under a cloth of state, and her surroundings were almost always comfortable and well appointed. She was attended by her own armed gentleman, which the English considered relatively armless, and in her chamber by her gentlewomen, and indeed by one of the four Marys, who had been her closest confidants in France and Scotland, Mary Seton was the one who came with her to England. Mary also sat at the heart of a diplomatic network. As a queen, she was allowed official diplomatic representation almost to the very end, and her networks 
were of two types a bit like Walsingham and Burleys. So she had an official network and an unofficial one. Her official representative in Paris, for example, was James Beaton, the ex-Archbishop of Glasgow. The unofficial network we'll hear about a bit later. She was paid for from the pockets other than her own, which should have been from the state, but Elizabeth I was definitively not the kind of person you expect to pay for their round at the local when her time came, so her jailers often ended up by paying from their own pocket. Meanwhile, Mary still received her payments as Queen Dowager of France and refused to contribute to the costs of her own imprisonment, which, you know, seems fair. And therefore, she had money to buy herself nice things, which she did, and money to pay people and agents to keep her in touch with the outside world. Although Mary represented herself, as we have heard, as a Catholic martyr to try and drum up support in Spain and France, in her household she maintained that rather attractive toleration for which, it seems to me, the Stuarts were notable. In her household and to her Scottish audience, she maintained a position as a politique. Her servants were mainly Catholic, but some were Protestant, and she attended Protestant services throughout her imprisonment. For the most part, for 15 of the 18 years that she was in prison, her jailer was George Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury. George braved the royal tusk and walked a thin line between treating Mary with respect and consideration and not risking being accused of going native. By and large, Mary respected Shrewsbury despite his role. Fortunately, Shrewsbury had plenty of houses, as you do. Wingfield House, Jatsworth, and his principal house, Sheffield Castle. He was married to a rather more famous wife, Bess of Hardwick, and that was a relationship and a half, I can tell you. Shrewsbury moved from describing her in 1568 as my jewel and my own sweetheart to land later at my wicked and malicious wife, or even my professed enemy. Part of that was the fault of his role. Bess became convinced that her husband was having an affair with Mary, which is, to be honest, unlikely. Mary is ceaselessly impressive in trying to use every single gram of leverage she possessed. So at one point, she killed two birds with one stone by writing to Elizabeth with a lexicon of all the terrible things that Bess of Hardwick had said about her queen, including the accusation that she'd had an affair with Dudley. And Mary offered to give her more of the dirt if she'd allow her to meet face to face. Elizabeth resisted the temptation of indulging in the goss. Mary, therefore, tried to use whatever leverage she got hold of in her restricted circumstances, corresponding with Spain and France where she could, but her French relatives had effectively abandoned her. The Spanish were more helpful. The Ridolfi plot in 1571 had been one example, and one of the governors, Don Juan of Austria, also tried to persuade Philip to launch an army to put Mary on the throne of England, but to no avail. Nonetheless, Mary worked at it. She hoped one day that her son James, to whom she wrote constantly, would one day remember his filial duty at last. But James was still not yet in control in the 1570s. Though the rise of a French favourite at court, Esme Stuart, suggested for a while that James would escape the influence of the regents. But in 1582, a group of Protestant Scottish lords executed a short-lived palace coup 
and the next result was the removal of Esme back to France. But whatever the comforts of her imprisonment, Mary burned with a sense of injustice all her life. Never for a moment did she drop her sense of majesty or her conviction that she was Elizabeth's equal. Never did she drop her efforts to get back where she belonged to be Queen of Scotland. She pulled every lever she could, including her famous wit, charm and influencing skills. Mary was ill quite frequently though, and she felt she was ageing before her time. She suffered from one stage from gastric flu that looked to be just about to kill her. She had severe problems with her legs as she got older too. One theory was that she had a disease called porphyria, but more likely it was just a combination of lack of exercise and constant mental distress. She was rarely allowed to go riding or hunting, and often when she was allowed, as by Ralph Sadler once, the jailer was reprimanded as a result. She missed her son badly and yearned to know of him, though it took until he was 18 for him to write to her. It tortured Mary. Is this just and right that I, a mother, shall be forbidden not only to give counsel and advice to my oppressed son, but also to understand what distressed state he is in. And at the same time, she felt her friends had deserted her, especially the French. She wrote to her old contacts constantly, but was distressed with the results. Her letters were often simply ignored. And meanwhile, Catherine de' Medici remained resolutely unhelpful, as did the Guise. When the Cardinal of Lorraine died in 1574, she lost her last personal contact with the family. It's unsurprising that at times she suffered from depression. I was interested to read, though, that she spent many summers at glorious Buxton, already a spa town in the 16th century, and where Shrewsbury built a secluded lodge for her use. I also do love Buxton, should you be thinking of visiting glorious Derbyshire. Though last time I was there, I have to say, I met a European tourist understandably a little miffed with the weather, who asked me why the English were so keen on coming to Buxton just so that they could walk in the rain. I had no answer for her. Now, I mentioned that Mary remained connected and constantly looking for leverage and advantage to get herself back onto her throne. As luck would have it, in 1582, a conversation was going on once more about how to get rid of Elizabeth and replace her with Mary. Her agent in Paris, under instruction from Mary in letters smuggled out from a house in Paul's Wharf in London, had made contact with the Duke of Guise, the Scottish Jesuit in Paris William Crichton and the Jesuit Robert Persons. I keep mentioning, by the way, the Catholic League, so I should probably just explain that the League had been established by the Catholic Duke of Guise in France and acquired support and funding from Spain and the Papacy. The League also sought political power in France and formed the spearhead of the Catholic Party in the French Wars of Religion. So, the League had clout. The plot spread and indeed thickened as plots do. A member of the English court was involved, Lord Henry Howard. He communicated secretly with one Charles Paget, another English Catholic conspirator in Paris. By this time, Robert Persons had committed to getting Spanish commitment and the Spanish ambassador Mendoza was involved. 
Plans had started with an invasion of Scotland, but had now moved to the invasion of England once William Allen became involved in the plotting. Elizabeth would be removed, religious toleration for Catholics enforced. Communication between Mary and the conspirators in France were carried out by a young man called Francis Throgmorton. He came from a wealthy family and would at first seem to be an odd type for conspiracy and treason. His father John was in government service and apparently a practising Protestant. But in fact, John was probably a church papist for he brought his children up in, as Catholics, including Francis. And when Francis Throgmorton visited Paris, he met, of course, with many English Catholics full of thoughts of rebellion. His language became much more aggressive in support of religion and politics when his father was ousted from his job as Chief Justice of Chester for corruption. One day then, in his house in Paul's Wharf in London, Throgmorton started to write in great secrecy to Mary herself. As he worked in his house, all around him were papers, the papers of rebellion, lists of Catholic lords and possible supporters, information about the best places to land invading armies, if that's what you were thinking of doing, plans to invade by Sussex and Cumbria, that sort of thing. As he was working on his letter that day, he heard violent noises of forced entry. Hurriedly, he destroyed his correspondence with Mary, but had too little time to remove all the other evidence around him. Before long he was in the tower and tortured to reveal what he knew. Reluctantly and moderately tortured was the official line. Not quite sure what moderate torture would be, but don't tell me. So, how had Throgmorton been rumbled then? Well, the answer lies, inevitably, in the network of agents that Walsingham had built up. He'd managed to turn a priest in Paris... Henri Fagot. Henri knew of a London-born clerk in the office of the French ambassador Castelnau, whose name was Laurent Ferrand. Laurent had also been turned and supplied Walsingham with the contents of the ambassador's bag, kipper stitched for the use of sir. Throgmorton was tried. Throgmorton was executed, stubbornly refusing to beg forgiveness of the Queen. Throgmorton is a good example then of that other response of Catholics during the reign. Not church papistry, not hearth piety, but treachery. Walsingham had very cleverly caught him, but Mary Stuart remained free to continue to plot and scheme, and Walsingham knew he had been lucky on this occasion, and he probably reflected that until Mary was removed, he had to be lucky every time, whereas would-be assassins only had to be lucky just the once. Burley and the Privy Council published a pamphlet all about the affair. It was called A Discovery of Treasons Practised by Francis Throgmorton. It raised a storm, and the fury it raised led to the bond of association, the bond signed by thousands of Englishmen to protect their queen and take vengeance if one of the plots succeeded. In 1585, they changed Mary's jailer away from the humane Shrewsbury to the frankly less than humane Amias Paulette. He was a harsh Puritan who lacked Shrewsbury's sympathy and flexibility. Others, he said, shall excuse their foolish pity as they may. 
he considered that treating Mary as a queen to be pandering to her, illustrated by the rather pitiful scene of Paulette constantly ripping down her cloth of estate while a tearful Mary had one of her servants replace it. Any pretense of Mary having any privacy or secrecy was now completely banished. Castel, now the French ambassador, was actually now in Walsingham's pocket because unless he did exactly what he was told, Walsingham would expose his part in the Throgmorton plot. Mary's letters were sent to Walsingham's desk in Seething Lane before being sent on to their destination. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One of the issues, of course, for the English state was all the confusion about Elizabeth's succession. Under continual pressure from Cecil to provide an answer, In 1584, Elizabeth opened negotiations with James VI, who had now announced his own majority. James presented fewer problems than Mary. He was a bloke, but his principal advantage was that he was Protestant. So, Elizabeth dangled the prospect in front of him that maybe she'd recognise him as her successor to the English throne. It led to a painful exchange between mother and son. James wrote to his mother, and he specifically rejected Mary's latest plan that she should return to Scotland to be joint monarch with her son. But he informed her that he would always honour her with the title of Queen Mother. If Mary had been by her son at the time, she would have told him to wash out his mouth of soap and water and given him a good clip round the ear hole and sent him to bed without any supper. As it was, she fell ill to a spasm of vomiting, and wrote back with fury. I am your true and only queen. Do not insult me further with this title of queen mother. There is neither king nor queen in Scotland except me. Mary's pain is palpable all these years later. She wrote to Michel de Castelnau, insisting that he not use the title king when corresponding with James, and to complaining bitterly that... I think no punishment to divine or human can equal such enormous ingratitude, if he is guilty of it, as it to choose to possess by force and tyrannically that which justly belongs to me and to which he cannot have any rights but through me. And yet despite her fury, the crown of England was every bit as attractive to James as it was to his mum. A year later, in 1585, therefore, a treaty of defensive alliance was signed between Elizabeth and James. It did not specifically name James as Elizabeth's heir, but it was strongly implied, and James's treaty allowed for a stipend to be paid by Elizabeth each year to James of a substantial sum. Standing back and looking at the treaty in the cold light of day, through it James had effectively turned his back on the old alliance with France, and rendered England's northern border safe. But also, he'd rendered his mother disposable and irrelevant as far as the English were concerned. Elizabeth 
had all she needed now from Scotland. Elizabeth remained resolutely opposed to Mary's execution, but as far as her Privy Council was concerned, it had moved a step closer. For Mary, it was the ultimate rejection, the ultimate betrayal. She was now genuinely desperate and willing to consider anything to break free and recover her freedom of action. Mary's consistent response to crises and disaster was not to whimper or give up, but the very opposite, to renew her defiance, challenge them to do their worst and do their very best to triumph over them. So, when a Catholic cleric called Gilbert Gifford came to call and told Mary that he could offer her a secret route to getting messages to the outside world, Mary was interested. Now Gifford came with the very best credentials, specifically with a recommendation from a Welshman currently stuck behind the walls of the Bastille on the request of the English government, Thomas Morgan. Now Morgan was the spider who sat in the centre of the Catholic resistance in Paris, and Morgan was well known to Mary because in 1568 he had joined the household of the Earl of Shrewsbury. He had given multiple favours to Mary at the time, tipping her off when a search was about to take place and help in hiding suspect papers. In 1575, he'd been discovered using a stationer's in London as a post office for Mary's correspondence and had been used by James Beaton as a cipher clerk for Mary's letters. So, when Morgan recommended Gifford, a young Staffordshire recusant and exile in France with impeccable credentials, Mary was ready to trust him. Gifford set off from France and arrived in England at Rye, which although it has but one sea, as far as I am aware, is a thoroughly lovely place and on our bucket list for a visit after lockdown. See you there. Anyway, many centuries before Covid, or indeed before the NHS, young Gifford came ashore where he was met by some lovely gentlemen who kindly suggested that maybe, perhaps, possibly, or in fact certainly, Gifford would like to come with them to meet one Francis Walsingham, one of the most powerful men in the realm. Gifford said, hmm, let me think about that. Francis who? Oh, go on then. What's the worst that can happen? Gifford proved easy to turn, as it happens. His weak spot was his brother, as it so often is, who was stuck in France and desperate to be allowed to return. The job that Walsingham gave to Gifford was to provide Mary with a seemingly secure route for her letters, a route as safe as houses, or at least as safe as the houses in Pudding Lane. The idea was that they'd put Mary's papers in a watertight package and then pop them into the barrels of beer regularly carted in and out of Mary's household and pop them in through the bung. Obviously, the papers might smell a bit of an old speckled hen by the time they got back to London, but hey, they'd be none the worse for that. When Gifford visited Mary in January 1586, she was delighted. Oh, the spying games, a nasty business, ladies and gentlemen, a dirty business. Because the route, of course, had been set up by Walsingham and his chumps. Over the next few months, the system was used and it seemed proven to Mary that it was all working fine. Well, Mary used her all-important new route to play the game for the highest possible stakes 
which was Mary's way, of course. Not just chips, but cheesy chips, and oh yes, I'll take the added lardons as well. So, her Paris agent, Charles Paget, had a plan. He was in touch with an English priest called John Ballard, and Ballard was convinced that the thumbs of the English Catholics were twitching with enthusiasm for rebellion right now, right now. And at the moment, Elizabeth's armies anyway were tied up in Netherlands, so now was the time to strike. Mary was enthusiastic. Yes, 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 she cried, and get my son involved too. She got in touch too with Mendoza, the now ex-ambassador for Spain. Well, that seemed to be that. After all, Mary had signed the Bond of Association in 1584, promising to defend Elizabeth's life. So, bang to right, surely, off with her head. And yet, Walsingham hesitated. Because really the plot so obviously had rubbish chances of success at this point, and Walsingham was worried it would not get everyone excited enough to entoast Mary permanently, he wanted more to persuade Elizabeth to do the right thing as he saw it. So, enter Anthony Babington, a young scion of a Derbyshire gentry family. Quite why you'd want to mess around with the rebellion when he could be walking the Peak District and eking Bakewell pudding, I have no idea. But young Babington had different priorities to me, and they lay in loyalty to Catholicism rather than to a mere pudding. Babington had been a page in Shrewsbury's household, as it happens, but was recruited to the cause by Thomas Morgan in 1580, when Babington visited Paris. He was then persuaded to sneak a package of letter to Mary Stuart, and voila, he was part of the team. From there, Babington was radicalised by John Ballard, who was now making sure everyone was quite clear that, come the Revolution Brothers, anyone who had not risen up against the hated tyrant would be first up against the wall. And Ballard introduced him to one John Savage. Savage was already a card-carrying member of the Regicide Society and indeed had sworn an oath that he would assassinate Elizabeth. Around Babington grew up a group of Catholics, lured by the prospect of power or martyrdom. Edward Jones swore he would raise the Catholics of Wales come the right moment. Robert Barnwell claimed that he could raise Ireland. And Robert Poley suggested that both Burley and Walsingham could be neutralised by being poisoned. And Poley should know because Poley was the plotter's agent within the household of the devil himself, Francis Walsingham. Babington actually used Poley to get an interview with Walsingham, seeking to become a double agent and gain more advantage, though Walsingham was not to be fooled, as it happens. Walsingham was not to be fooled in another way, as it happens, because he already had the plotter's much-vaunted secret agent, i.e. said Poley, in his pocket. So Walsingham, the old devil, knew exactly what was going on. So he watched and he waited. Never interrupt your enemy when making a mistake. Thomas Morgan, the chief Catholic agent in Paris, you might remember, now got in touch with Mary and asked her to write to Babington, assuring him of her favour. She did so, and Babington, immediately flattered, dumped any remaining inhibitions he might have had. In his reply, he referred to Elizabeth as the usurping competitor. He outlined the plan to raise rebellion and remove Elizabeth. All Mary had to do was say the word. In Seething Lane, Walsingham 
held his breath. Walsingham held his breath for nine days, which is impressive, you've got to admit, while Mary carefully considered her reply. A bit like a mouse, sniffing at a piece of Stilton on a traditional cheese trap. They can see that there's an odd metal contraption around, but my, does that cheese smell good? And is that a glass of port? Eventually Mary wrote, asking for details, making suggestions... She didn't actually say, do the deed on that witch Elizabeth, but it is implied. And she thoroughly and comprehensively endorsed rebellion. Into the barrel went the package. Out of the barrel came the package to Walsingham's cryptologist, Thomas Phillips in Seething Lane, smelling faintly of old speckled hen, where the code of the letter was decrypted. Phillips knew what he had got here and what it meant. In a postscript he added for Walsingham's benefit, he drew a little tiny image of a gallows with a body hanging from it. I kid you not, the document still survives and I have popped it onto the website. Anyway, Walsingham decided to act by arresting John Ballard, the radical priest, just to shake things up a bit. Hearing Ballard had been pulled in, the conspirators looked at their supply of buttons and firmly pressed the one called panic. Savage was told to get on with it, put his dagger where his mouth is and go and kill Elizabeth, while Babington took two courses of action. Firstly, he sent a message via Poli to Walsingham saying that if his life was guaranteed, he could tell him about a plot to kill the Queen. On receipt of which, Walsingham may well have chuckled in an evil sort of way and twiddled his moustachios while he did it. And secondly, Babington legged it and hid out in St John's Wood, sleeping in barns, dressed as a farm labourer, which you wouldn't say in St John's Wood these days, I can tell you. But after ten days he was caught. As he and his fellow conspirators were paraded through the streets of London, the city corporation lit bonfires of celebration and the church bells rang out. By the 21st of September, in a blizzard of body parts, all the conspirators had been executed. A souvenir pamphlet was produced so that people could remember the happy occasion, with the words, Now mayest thou see what fruitless gain from Antichrist does spring, and how to shameful wretched end the Pope his people bring. A rhyme worthy of Keats or McGonagall, maybe, but which kind of made the point. Now then, the arguments have been long and hard, hard and long. Walsingham was guilty of entrapment. Phillips's copy of the letter and his postscript includes forgeries. And maybe Morgan himself was an English spy. And he was indeed imprisoned in France for suspicion of that very thing, in fact. But the facts remain that Mary, although helpfully provided by Walsingham with every available L of rope by which to hang herself, did indeed wrap the rope around her neck and condemn herself, and clearly gave approval for rebellion and murder of the woman she described as her good sister and friend. I suspect that after 18 years of incarceration, the death of all her hopes, her betrayal by her son, that Mary saw little point in caution. Going back to Mary, though, in captivity, and not knowing at that point that Babington had been arrested, she was excited 
re-energised by Babington's plot while it was going on, maybe freedom was finally coming her way. And on the 11th of August, 1586, Paulet actually allowed her to go hunting. Things were looking up. And when she saw a body of horsemen ride into sight while she was out in the fields, for a moment maybe, Mary believed that the rebellion had taken place and that she was about to be rescued. Hurrah! Cry Harry! Oh, no. Cry Fergus and St Andrew! But no. It had all been a trick. They were come to take her for closer confinement prior to a trial. Elizabeth, meanwhile, was in a complete pother. At the trials of the conspirators, she did her very best to keep Mary's name out of it. It may be that Elizabeth really did not want to execute Mary anyway for personal reasons. But just logically, she was against the idea of subjects deposing and chopping off their monarch's heads. She believed the world to be a monarch-chopping-free zone. Her Privy Council relentlessly pursued the logic of the situation, though, and forced it on Elizabeth. She kicked, she screamed, she dragged her heels at every step of the way, but the logic was inescapable. She would not be safe until Mary was dead. Mary was taken to Fotheringhay in Northamptonshire, where she was to be tried by a panel of 24, including Cecil. Mary resisted with all that was in her power, though she held precious few cards. But she furiously denied the jurisdiction of the court. Firstly, she was a queen, responsible to no court but that of God. Secondly, how could she be accused of treason? Elizabeth was not her queen. But in the end, unlike Charles I, she agreed to plead. In the hearing itself, Cecil was relentless. Mary fought tooth and nail, but had all the disadvantages of those accused of treason through the ages. No access to legal advice, no sight of the evidence. Still, she fought with wit and ingenuity. The papers were forged, she claimed. At one point, as Cecil hammered away, Mary turned straight to him and looked at him and said, Ah, I see you are my adversary. Yes, replied Cecil, I am adversary to Queen Elizabeth's adversaries. The following day, the verdict was handed down and it was not a shock. Guilty. But Elizabeth refused to allow the sentence to be proclaimed. Elizabeth was in a desperate quandary. Mary would be executed under the Parliamentary Acts for the Queen's protection. Allowing Mary to be executed by Act of Parliament set a hideous precedent, especially for a monarch. Not just the green light to any monarch killers out there, but also an extraordinarily high level of power resting with Parliament. What Elizabeth really wanted now was for Mary to be killed by a private citizen, in secret, a pillow-over-the-mouth-at-night job, so that she could deny her guilt and Parliament's right. The delay dragged on for weeks, while Elizabeth hoped against hope that Mary would die or someone would take the Thomas Beckett gambit, who will rid me of this turbulent ex-Queen of Scotland. Meanwhile, James in Scotland was also in a right hole. If he allowed his mother to be executed, his subjects would be livid. But what could he do? He could ask for French help, but still, France had problems of their own and would be very unlikely to give any help at all. And meanwhile, the succession. The succession to the English throne sat there like a succulent, 
shimmering fruit. Cecil knew no doubt, nor did Walsingham. They were determined to finish it. In February 1587, Burley panicked the Elizabethan horses by inventing rumours of plots, even a landing with a mythical troop of Spanish soldiers in England for the gallery. In the mayhem, Elizabeth signed a warrant for Mary's execution, but she gave instructions to Walsingham to write to Paulet, ordering him to kill Mary without a warrant. Paulet was shocked. For all his lemon-sucking puritanism, he was a man of principle, and he refused to do any such thing, no matter who was asking. God forbid I should make so foul a shipwreck of my reputation, he said. Cecil was implacable. He convened a secret meeting of the Privy Council and had the warrant sent on to Fotheringhay without Elizabeth's permission and without telling Elizabeth so that she could not countermand the execution. He would have his victim and it would be public. The day before her execution was due, the earls of Shrewsbury and Kent came to tell Mary of her fate. Mary replied, I am quite ready and very happy to die, and shed my blood for Almighty God, my Saviour and Creator, and for the Catholic Church, and to maintain its rights in this country. Mary's personal reinvention as a Catholic martyr was completed in a letter that she wrote to Henry III of France, staying up until two o'clock in the morning to finish it. I am to be executed like a criminal at eight o'clock in the morning. The Catholic faith and the defence of my God-given right to the English throne are the reasons for which I am condemned. And yet, they will not say it is for the Catholic faith that I die. Mary slept little that night, and at six rose and prepared with her gentlewomen. When all was ready, she entered the hall where the dais, almost six foot high, stood before her with the block covered in black. Mary kept her composure and commanded the scene with the majesty she so powerfully possessed. She made a speech, asking those present to tell my friends that I died a true woman to my religion, and like a true Scotswoman, and like a true Frenchwoman. Multiple loyalties, you see, and identities, an issue even in Elizabethan times. She walked to the block and refused to yield to the Protestant dean asking to pray with her. I want nothing to do with you or your doctrine. And she drowned out his prayers with her own, tears now running down her face as she prayed for the church, her son and Elizabeth. When it was time, she removed her dress and veil and was revealed in shocking scarlet, the colour of blood and the colour of her martyrdom. She put her head to the block and her head was severed in two blows. Three bits of legend surround the execution. Her lips were said to move for 15 minutes afterwards. It is said that the executioner didn't realise that she wore a wig, and so when he lifted the head by the hair, the head fell off and rolled across the dais, which is, you know, awkward. And finally, that when her body was moved, her small dog was found quivering next to her body under her skirts. So perish all the Queen's enemies, said the Dean. Well, good golly, Miss Molly, there's an end to it. Mary's death did indeed lead to an end to plot to assassinate Elizabeth, but I suppose can hardly said to have made anyone's life safer 
since war was round the corner, which is traditionally bad for the health. And what of Mary, one of the most famous figures in Scottish and indeed British history? Her reputation recently has been on a bit of a high. John Guy, for example, in his really excellent biography, My Heart is My Own, describes her as the unluckiest prince in history with all the talents and yet facing a seemingly impossible situation. He's almost in tears by the end of the book, which would have made Mr Smith cheer loudly in agreement. Kate Williams paints a picture of a talented ruler who was the victim of sexual politics of her time, betrayed by the man around her and the relentless misogyny of John Knox. I wouldn't disagree with either of them. Her approach to religious toleration was far superior to the Tudors, she was charismatic and positive, and she faced extraordinary problems at a time of viciously factional politics in Scotland, a time of enormous social and religious change, a toxic diplomatic environment in which she led a small nation in a large pond full of fish with large pointy teeth, and most certainly she faced misogyny and betrayal. But she was also naive, impulsive, and made some stonkingly poor decisions at crucial moments. Her motto, my heart is my own, is rather suitable for her. So much of Mary's decisions seems to have so much to do with her heart rather than her head. And it's a bit difficult to avoid Jenny Wormold's unforgiving conclusion that when all the shouting is done, she was a failure. Right now then, everyone, you know where that brings us, do you not? There is nothing anymore that stands between us and the boom of the cannon, the blast of the trumpet, the cries and screaming of the dying, the bells and cheers of the victors and the tears of the losers. I refer to war. Let's slip the dogs of tiddlywinks. We'll start sliding down that slippery slope next week. Until that time... I would like to thank you again for all your lovely reviews on iTunes and the website and Facebook. I read them all and I'm eternally grateful. So, good luck then everyone. Have a good week full of fun and laughter. It's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.